Good morning. Praise the Lord for his love for us. Isn't it a comforting and wonderful thing to, to know that the God who made us loves us? And without that love, where would we be? Take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew, no, I'm sorry, Mark, chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at, start in verses 28 and look through verse 31. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. The religious leaders had just finished talking um, to Jesus and had a lot of questions for him. Um, and they were trying to get him to say something that they could use to accuse him and, and, and to get rid of him. But being the wise and loving God-man that he is, they, they couldn't find anything that they could use to accuse him in, in, in all his, the, the answers that he had for them. And as all this questioning was taking place, there was a scribe who had been listening in and had made the observation that Jesus answered them well. So he had a question of his own, and, and it's a really a question that all of us should want to know the answer to. So follow with me as I read in verse 28. He says, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? The scribe is asking of everything that God wants for, from us, what is the most important thing? You know, Jesus' answer really sums up God's will for each of us. Look at verse 29. It says, and Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. He says, listen up. Here's the greatest command. Here's what matters most to God. It really sums up all of God's desire for us, and that is God is to be number one in our lives. There's to be no person, no passion or pursuit, um, no position, and really practically no job or, or hobby or car or clothing or, or gadget. You, you name it, it's between you and the Lord. Anything that takes priority in our time or thoughts over God Is not what God wants. God uses these things in their life, in our life, and, and they're not bad in their place. Because God has given us richly all things to enjoy. But the Lord our God is one Lord, and He can't be number one in our lives if we make Him second place to the things that we desire. So the question is: how can God be made number one in our life? Look at verse 30. He gives the answer there. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. What he's saying here is everything about who you are, your desires, your will, your feelings, what you think about, what you do, these must be focused on, on letting God be number one in your life. And then he, Jesus continues and he says in verse 31, and the second is like unto it, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He says these commands go together because when you're truly loving God, then we will have a love for others. 1 John 4.20 says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? He can't. We're going to see why in a minute here. Jesus concludes in verse 31 with, There is none other commandment greater than these. This is God's greatest desire for us. The 
folks, as I share this, I'm burdened of the lack of love in my own life. And I pray you bear with me as we continue through this. These are truths that, that I'm learning yet. And let's, let's just open with a word of prayer. Father, would you just bless this time with your wisdom? Lord, would you, Lord, would you fix our heart problems, my heart problem, and not making you first? Lord, would you teach us to love as only you can love? Would you help us to see our need for you to love through us? Lord, that our lives would be to your glory. I pray that you'd give wisdom as I speak today. Please guide our hearts towards you through this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to look at a couple of verses over there to, to lay some groundwork for this. If loving God with our all and loving our neighbor as ourself is so important, we have to answer this question. How can this be made real in my life? How can we possess this love to fulfill God's greatest desire for us? Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. John is reminding us here of God's command for us to love each other, and we find in these verses something that really helps us understand the source of love, as well as two things that will be true of any who is truly loving. He says, let us love one another for, and here's why and how we can love, love is, is of God. The word of not only carries the idea of it, of it being fitting of those who belong to God, but it also carries the idea of being from God. Love is from God. If I were just to put it um, in my own words with a little example, the eggs that we eat at our house are of Carl's chickens. They are, they are from Carl's chickens is what I'm saying. Carl's chickens are the source of the eggs that we eat, okay? That's a goofy illustration, but... The idea is from. Love is from God. God is the source of love, which means that apart from God as our source, we can't love. But then he goes on here in, in this verse to give two things that will be the case in everyone, anyone that is truly loving. The first is, everyone that loveth is born of God. First, you have to be saved. You have to be born of God. And, and how, how can that be if, you, if you're... Bible is laid out right just across the page, chapter 5 and verse 1 of 1 John. He says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. When you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the God-man who was chosen to die and save you from your sin, God says you're born of God. You are spiritually born into God's family with a new relationship with God as your heavenly Father. You've been made His child. That's the, first, that's the first prerequisite for those who would truly be loving. He says, everyone that loveth first is born of God, and second, knoweth God. Our ability to love is directly tied to how much we know our God. Knowing God is not just having the facts about him in our mind. 
It starts there, but the idea of knowing here is that of a relationship. You know, it wouldn't be proper for me to say that I know President Biden. I know facts about him, but I don't really know him in the sense that I have any kind of a, a relationship with him. I don't know all of his likes or dislikes. I'm not personally acquainted with him. Knowing the facts about what God is like doesn't mean we are actually personally acquainted with him. You know, we know God is loving and merciful and gracious. We know God is holy and, and righteous and just. And maybe we've experienced that at some point in our life in, in, a, in a close relationship with him. But how would we describe our relationship with him right now? How much is he in our experience right now? One way to, to tell, to gauge that is, does he seem like a friend that is near that you can just spend time with? Or does he feel like a benevolent king that you just go to in your time of need? The fact is, he's never far away, and he's always available to walk with and to know, but the problem is, I get so distracted with things in my life that I'm trying to figure out and take care of that I just forget about him until I realize that I desperately need him. Getting to know someone in the way that this person is talking about, knowing God, is, is the idea of an active relationship that, that's growing. How do I get to know him? Verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 John. Getting to know God takes time beholding him. He says, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Getting to know God takes time beholding him. You know, knowing God isn't the same as knowing the Bible. You have to know the Bible to get to know God, but until we let God take what he says to show us who he is, who he's able to be in our moment-by-moment -moment life, we won't know God. And until I get desperate to have God, instead of the safe harbor of my own theological grid, my own comfort zone, my own comfortable way of living, allowing him to use me in whatever way he chooses, I'll never really know and experience the God who loves me and has only my best good in mind. And unless I'm getting to know God, I can't love others the way I ought to. Look at verse 8 of 1 John 4. John gets a little more emphatic in tying our knowing God to the love that we possess. He says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Basically what he's saying here is if you're unloving, your fellowship with God isn't active because God is love, and if he was there, he'd be loving. It's almost like in this verse, John is appealing them to, to seek to love each other because in doing so, they'll realize their need for God. Two more verses here real quick on this topic. Look down at verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. The idea of dwelling is, is, is staying with. You know, when you dwell in your house, you reap the blessing and the benefits of, of the protection and the comfort that your house gives you for living. 
Dwelling with God is, is staying with him each moment of our lives. It's communicating with him and seeking him in all our ways. Dwelling with God is the attitude of the heart that says, I'm not going anywhere where God isn't going. As we grow in this love by dwelling in him and he in us, his love is perfected. It's grown. It's matured as we learn to love one another with his love. Look at verse 16. And we know and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God. And God in him. I want us to keep this thought in mind as we continue here. To have love, we must be walking with God. We must be dwelling or, or abiding with him because he is love. True love is not a feeling that changes when people or circumstance change. True love doesn't give up on other people when they've hurt us or disappointed us. Having love is having the presence of God working in us to love others through us. But now we ask, what does this love look like? We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 in just a minute. It's the, the great love chapter of the Bible. And in it we'll find a list of 16 qualities that really describe what love looks like in action. And if there's one thing I don't want us to miss, it's, and that I'm burdened that we all take away with today, it's that God is love. And the only way for us to love, to show God's love, is by an active, abiding relationship with Him. Then as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, I'd, I'd like to... Um, point out a very practical way that I believe God would have us to use this list of what love, love looks like in our day-to-day -day lives. So turn over to 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in, in chapter 12. Up through chapter 12, Paul had to deal with the Corinthians on a lot of issues ranging from, from disunity to, to carnal-mindedness, fornication, to, to taking each other to court before unbelievers to selfishness at the Lord's table. But then in chapter 12, he, he leads into another issue on the matter of spiritual gifts, which I'd like to take a peek at before we go into to chapter 13. Chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul starts with, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. He says, you know, you know, when God makes us part of the body of Christ, he gives each of us a unique gift to fill a role in the body of believers. And the problem that Paul was seeking to help the Corinthian church with was, in this chapter was to clear up any confusion in the use of these gifts. There's good indication from how he was admonishing them that they were misusing and had a wrong focus on these gifts. Instead of using them to help each other, it would seem that they had a problem with using them to, to lift each other, to lift themselves up, to make themselves look good. And the church was suffering for it. Beginning in verse 12 of, of chapter 12, Paul illustrates how the church should operate it by, by paralleling it with our physical bodies. I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. He says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bound or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. 
Each part of our physical bodies, like our, our hands and our feet, or our eyes, have to do what they were made to do in order for our body to function properly. In the same way, God has given each of us a part to play in, in this local body that is vital for us to function the way that he made us to function. We can't all do the same thing, and, and we can't all do our own thing if we're going to be all that God intended us to be. The Holy Spirit, through, through Paul, gets really practical in, in painting this picture for us. Look at verse 15. He says, If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If my feet just up and decided, hey, you know what? I'd just rather be the hand. I'm tired of all this walking around stuff. It's kind of dirty down there anyway. I just, I'm, I'm done. If my feet stopped functioning, would my body operate the way it was supposed to? And the answer is no. No, it wouldn't. Look at verse 16. And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If my ear said, hey, you know what? All this, all this noise coming in, I'd just rather be done with that right now. I want the eyes job. I, I just want to take in all the sights. Would my body function the way it ought to? No, it wouldn't. Then verse 17, he takes a slightly different angle. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? If everyone did the same thing, we wouldn't be a living organism. We'd be an organ. Last I checked, a pair of eyes sitting around didn't help anyone. There's, there's nothing for that eye to communicate with. Look at verse 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. See, God made our physical bodies, each part of our physical bodies, to serve a specific purpose. And God designed each one of us as the body of Christ to serve a specific purpose. And God gives to each of us different gifts, like teaching or leadership or or the gifts of mercy, or the gifts of faith that are needful to help the rest of us in those areas. But for the Corinthians, instead of using these gifts and abilities that God had given them to help each other, it seemed that they were using them to make themselves look good or, or to outdo each other. You know, some may have been just trying to fill gaps that others were leaving, but needless to say, the body of Christ at Corinth wasn't functioning the way that it was supposed to. You know, you suppose there's ways in, in this local body that, that we're not operating the way we ought to? That's a question for each individually to take before the Lord. With the, with the request, God, am I truly using how you've gifted me to love the brothers and sisters around me? As Paul addressed this matter with the Corinthians, he was leading up to addressing the root of their problem. There was one thing that was missing and that was love. Because God is love, they were missing the presence and power of God in their lives, and therefore, love was absent. They had some form, but, but they didn't have God. Because without love, without God, any gift or talent that we have is meaningless. Look at verse 27 of, of chapter 12. He says, Now are ye the body of Christ, and members in particular, and God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, 
Thirdly, teachers, after that, miracles, gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Is everyone an eyeball? Is everyone a foot? No. No, it's a body. Then he says in verse 31, leading up to chapter 13, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. You know, there's a little uncertainty as to whether or not Paul is using sarcasm in this last verse of chapter 12. The word covet can be used in both a negative and a positive way in the way that Paul uses it, but I think it's entirely probable based on the problems that, that Paul outlines earlier in this book um, that the envy and strife that existed in the Corinthian believers, he was, he was using sarcasm, and, and you could essentially read it like this. Paul's saying, sure, you can keep on going this way. You can keep on coveting or, or envying or desiring the best gifts, but here's a better way. Better than trying to be something God didn't intend you to be. Better than trying to make a name for yourself. Better than being so consumed with your gift. Yet show I you a more excellent way. And he leads into chapter 13, the way of love. Look at chapter 13. Just a quick overview. Verses 1 through 3 begin by addressing the importance of love. And then verses 4 through 7 really go on to describe the qualities of love. So let's start in verse 1, looking at the importance of love. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You know, brass and cymbals are, are both musical instruments. Brass is like what you see here. It's a, it's a round piece of metal um, that makes a lot of noise when you hit it. Um, a cymbal is, is similar to it, um, only it's two pieces that you would clash together. Um, and, and the word sounding brass, that word sounding has the idea of, of a roaring noise, like the waves of the ocean. It's a, it's a loud, deafening roar. And the word tinkling is, carries the idea of a crashing sound. Not pleasant, out of place. You know, every once in a while you find work environments where someone else is, is making a bunch of racket with, uh, with a speaker of some kind. I hate to call it music, but that's what some people call it. I was, I was just working the other day in, in an environment like that and got to a point in their um, episode of noise where there was just a bunch of crashing cymbals and it's like, how can you stand that? And the first thing that came to mind is like, you know what, I haven't heard anything so spectacular since I heard that truck full of empty milk cans run into that truck full of live ducks. <laughs> anyway, that's just a fun joke that we use for that kind of sound. But anyway, what, what, what Paul is saying here is, if I had some of the best gifts of teaching and speaking with great ability, and I didn't use these gifts with love, he says, I'm just a bunch of noise. I'm just a bunch of noise. It's worthless. It's not only worthless, but it's, it, it's harmful. And we're going to kind of get that picture as we go along here. See, brass and cymbals have their place. And when they're used correctly, they can add a lot to music. Using the gifts that God has given 
to you and I is good when it's used to edify and to build up and to help each other. But if, but if God isn't in it, he's saying it's just a bunch of noise. Look at verse 2. He says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. He's saying I could be the wisest and most gifted in knowing what God has revealed to us. I could have a trust in God that was big enough to believe that he could remove mountains. But Paul says even if I have these gifts without love, I'm nothing. I'm zero. You see, it's, it's pride in our hearts that makes us focused on, on how privileged we, would, we are to have gifts. But love helps us focus our attention on how God can use those gifts in us to love others through us. Look at verse 3. He says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Wait a second. I thought it was loving to give to feed the poor. I thought it was loving to give. Well, it is. For God so loved the world that he gave. And what about giving your body to be burned? I, I thought laying down your life for someone is loving. Well, it is. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. But, you know, I could be the most giving person. I could be, I could even give myself up to die for someone else. But if my motive is for my own glory instead of with God's love in my heart, he says it profits me nothing. And the point is this, doing the right thing the wrong way or for the wrong reason doesn't make it good. Doing the right thing without the presence of God in our lives to fill us with his love is not good and it will not help anyone. It's called having the form of godliness, but not denying the power thereof. We need God. For without him, we can do nothing. What Paul is telling the Corinthians is love is so important that even without, even though I have these great gifts or do these good things, without charity, without love, without God, I'm just an annoying, obnoxious, Worthless, unprofitable, harmful, bunch of noise. You get the picture? I get the picture. <laughs> okay, let's look at verse 4 through 7 now. We're going to look at these specific qualities of love that show us what love looks like in action. And as I thought through this list in the light of the fact that God is love, it occurred to me that this, this isn't just a list of things for you to do if you want to be loving. Verse 3 demonstrates this fact that you can, be, you can do loving things and not truly be loving. So I want us to take this key thought. These qualities of love are listed for us as indicators of whether or not we are dwelling or walking with God. It's not a recipe to have love. These are reminders to look to God, who is love. Indicators. You know, if you're like me, when you, when you get in a vehicle and you start driving, there's this, there's this little red light that starts flashing, accompanied by a little dinging noise, and it's a little reminder that says, hey, you don't have your seatbelt on. I like, to, I like to call those things tattletales. 
and these, the vehicles these days, it's not just the driver that it tells on, it's, it's the passenger, and, and some even these days are even tattletelling all the passengers in the back seat. Seat belts are good, you can wear your seat belt, but that's just uh, it's an indicator that comes up that, that tells me that something's got to change, all right? That's the point I'm driving at here. Another indicator, an oven timer. You know, if you're, you're making cookies and you, set the, you put them in the oven, you set the timer, and after the timer is up, you hear that beeping noise, it's an indicator. Hey, something's got to change here. You better get those cookies out of the oven unless you want a house filled with smoke and charcoal balls to serve up. <laughs> indicators. Look at these as indicators which alert us of a need for change. Charity indicators. When our actions or attitudes don't line up with these qualities of love, something has to change. Not, I've got to try harder to get in line with, with this or that quality of love. It's, hey, I need God right now. I need his love. So let's look at the first one here in verse 4. Charity suffers long. Suffering is, is a pain that's either on the inside or outside, in, in your spirit or in your body, when someone has said or done something offensive or hurtful to you. Long-suffering is, is being patient with someone who has failed you or done you wrong, but still having a good attitude and having a desire to do kind things for them. Long-suffering is being patient with someone without giving them a, a deadline to change. Now, it's true that love will speak the truth, and if someone is doing something that is that is wrong, or it is loving to confront them in a kind way, but not just so you can be relieved of your suffering, but with the desire to see them restored to fellowship with God. Aren't you glad that God is long-suffering with us? There was a college professor I heard of once that, that didn't believe in God. And often he liked to get in front of his class and say, you know, if God is real, I give him five minutes to strike me dead. You know, God never did strike him dead. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There was a preacher who heard of this professor's challenge to God, and he made this remark. And did he think that he could exhaust the patience of an eternal God in five minutes? God is long-suffering to us, Lord. God is long-suffering, and if he was not, we would not be here. And though he failed him so much, he always lovingly corrects us and draws us back, and he wants to help us do the same for others. When we're tempted to lose our patience or to stop suffering long with that brother or sister that is being unkind, it's an indicator. I can't be long-suffering by myself. God, I need your help right now. I need your patience. Look at the second indicator. Charity suffers long and is kind. Kindness is, is doing good to others. Notice it says, and is kind. These, these first two kind of go together because love goes beyond just patiently enduring other people's unkindness. It also goes out of its way to show kindness. Long-suffering says, I'll endure whatever unkindness and mean words are said to me. Kindness goes a step further and says, and I'll give them good in return. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, 
Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children, the children of your heaven, your Father, which is in heaven. You know, it doesn't feel good to be trampled on or spoken unkindly to, but love isn't a feeling. Love is the action of letting Jesus live through you. Love says, forget what I feel about God. How would you have me to respond to this brother or sister who, who just took that toy away from me or said that unkind word? When you're tempted to be unkind, it's an indicator. I can't be kind by myself. God, I need you to be kind through me right now. And then look for ways that God would have you to show kindness to them. I'm reminded of, of the testimony of, of a young lady by the name of Peggy Covell. Peggy was the daughter of Jim and Charma Covell, who were missionaries to Japan in, in the years leading up to World War II. Peggy had returned to the States to begin her college studies while her parents stayed back in Japan as missionaries. As the war began, Mr. and Mrs. Cavell had to flee to Japan for fear of being killed by the Japanese. Before long, the Japanese had invaded Japan, had invaded the Philippines, and they were obviously very hostile to any foreigners. And before long, the sol Japanese soldiers found Mr. and Mrs. Cavell. They accused them of being spies because they found a radio in their possession, and after a brief mock trial, they were executed. They were killed by the very people that they had come to share God's love with. You can imagine how devastating this must have been for Peggy. At first she was angry and bitter towards the Japanese for killing her parents, but then she thought about what her parents would have done. Apparently she learned that they had been granted permission to pray, pray for 30 minutes before their execution. As she pondered what they may have prayed, she was certain her mother and father would have spent their last moments forgiving and loving their enemies. Peggy knew that she needed to forgive them too. Peggy needed a love and forgiveness that she could not come up with on her own. No human being can possibly come up with a love for enemies like that, but God's love is the kind that, that gave himself for us even while we were still sinners. God's kind of love made it possible for us to be reconciled to himself even while we were still his enemies. These Japanese soldiers weren't sorry for killing her parents, so Peggy needed the kind of love that were forgive and show kindness to her enemies in spite of their evil. She began to ask God how he would have her to share his love with her enemies. Near the college that she was at, um, near the Colorado and Utah border, there was a prisoner of war camp where Japanese soldiers were kept. And God led her to volunteer at that camp to show those prisoners kindness by bringing them blankets and Bibles and by sharing the good news with them. That's love. That's God. And because God let because Peggy let God love others through her, some of those prisoners came to know Jesus as their Savior. Her testimony of showing God's love and forgiveness came to the attention of a, of a Japanese fighter pilot by the name of Mitsu Fuchida. Mr. Mr. Fuchida was the Japanese pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor, and because of Peggy's testimony, Mr. Fuchida began a search to found out, find out how a love like that could even be possible. And it was as he searched the Bible that he found it was God's love and that God loved even him, and he trusted Jesus as his Savior. Mr. Fuchida went on to be an evangelist in Japan and led many Japanese to the Lord. That's the power of God's love, 
and a willing vessel. That's what God's love looked like as Peggy let him love through her. And just as much as she needed him for that very big thing in her life, brothers and sisters, we need him for the small things too. Charity suffers long and is kind. Verse 4 of chapter 13. Charity envies not. Envy is a strong desire for something that someone else has. Envy says, I wish what they had, but love says, thank you, God, for what you've given to that person and, and what you've given to me. Thank you for how you've made me. Love is content, recognizing that God has given us all that we need. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Love recognizes that we don't need anything else but him to make us happy. Looking to God with gratitude is the cure for envy. So when we're tempted to envy or, or desire what other people have, it's an indicator of your need for God. God, I need you right now. Thank you for all that you've given me. Continuing on here, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed. Uh, vaunteth is, is a pride that's on the outside. It's, it's a boasting or making a vain display of what you think is good about you. And the idea of being puffed up is a pride that's, that's on the inside that, that makes, you, makes you think more highly of yourself. You know, one of the most common ways that we do that is when we talk about ourselves in a way that makes us look good or, or better than others. Look what I've done. Look at me. Often, we're not that obvious. Maybe we just drop a hint here or there that help people catch on to the good that we've done. Until I speak from experience. We have our ways of lifting ourselves up, but love doesn't do that. With God's love in us, we'll lift up others, not ourselves. When we're tempted to talk about ourselves or do things in a way that seeks to lift up ourselves, that's an indicator. God, I need your your humility right now. Verse 5. Love does not behave itself unseemly. Unseemly is, is in an unfitting way. It has the idea of rudeness or, or poor manners. Love does not behave itself rudely. Rudeness says, I don't care what affects you. I'll do whatever I want, whether, whether you like it or not. How about bad manners at the table? Smacking your lips, slurping your soup. You know, maybe that's okay in your house, but, but if others don't appreciate it, then it's not loving to do it. See, love gets lost in, in caring about how your actions or words affect other people. Love is not rude. See, if your brother or sister asks you to stop doing that, is it really loving to keep doing whatever that is? No. When you're tempted to keep doing something you know someone doesn't like, it's an indicator, God, I need you right now. I need your love in order to not be rude. Charity seeks not her own. You know, one quality, this is really one quality that, that summarizes all of love. Love gives up what it possesses in order to help someone else, even if it means personal loss or injury. I have a fun little illustration here from a movie that I think many of you guys are familiar with called Runners from Raven's Head. Have you all seen that one? 
there was a little guy named Henry who was, who was just trying to help someone escape to the city of refuge. And, and that poor little guy, he was always getting himself drugged through the poke berries. He got himself ganked out of trees, drugged down hills. He was just, he was in it for the long haul and he was getting beat up bad. And there was one point along the way where this refugee that he was trying to help was, was going somewhere other than the, to the city of refuge where he was trying to direct her to. And, and, he, and he confronted her. He said, why aren't you going where I told you to? He says, why would a little guy like me be out here killing himself if, I, if I'm not really out here to help you? And, th and then he said this, we both know I'm not out here for my health. <laughs> Love seeks not its own. Love does stuff that, that's not necessarily good for your health. It, it's not necessarily good for you, but it's good for others. Isn't that what God did for us? For God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus didn't have to come to die for my sin. But because God is love, God did not seek his own best interest. He sought what was best for you and me at a great cost. Christ died for us. Can I say this reverently? He didn't do that for his health. When we're tempted to seek what we would want above others, it's an indicator. I need God right now. God, I need your help to seek someone else's good instead of what I want. Continuing on, love is not easily provoked. The provoking is to be stirred up or to become angry. It's not easily provoked. It's, it's steady. It's not quick to get upset and respond angrily to others who do you wrong. So when you're tempted to be stirred up or, or, or angry when someone has done you wrong, that should be an indicator. Oh, I need God right now. I need his love to keep me from becoming angry at that person. Continuing on here. Love thinketh no evil. That word thinketh is, is to keep a record of. Other versions use, translate it this way. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love forgives other people when they do us wrong. And that's what God did for us. When we're tempted to think about others based on how they've treated us wrongly, that's an indicator. God, I need your thoughts right now. God, I need your love so that I can see them as you see them. Love doesn't keep a record of what's wrong. Verse 6, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Very simply, love isn't happy about me or, or someone else doing wrong. It's only happy when the truth is being lived and believed. If you are truly abiding and dwelling with God, it will grieve you to see someone else doing what God doesn't like. It'll grieve you to find yourself saying or thinking something that displeases God. But with God's love, you'll be happy or excited about what is true, things that are right, things that are good. The temptation to rejoice in iniquity or not to rejoice in something that is right should be an indicator to point us to our need for God in that moment. For sake of time, no, I think we still have enough time. I'm going to finish this last one. You all bear with me. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Keep in mind that each of these qualities of love are concerned with a love for people. 
In verse 7, we see a kind of progression of love from, from one depth to the next. If you think of an individual who's, who is wandering or straying from what is right, verse 7 follows this progression of how, that, how love deals with that erring individual. First, love bears all things. This word bear has the idea of covering. Love seeks to protect another by covering or, or containing what they did or said. In other words, love doesn't needlessly advertise someone else's problems. Proverbs 17, 9 says, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that separateth the matter, he that repeateth the matter, separateth very friends. You know, it's true that love also speaks the truth and, and will help will seek to help deal with an issue in whatever way necessary, even when it requires sharing that problem with those who need to know. But love won't gossip or talk needlessly about other people's problems. Without love, we have a tendency to, to complain about how others have done us wrong, but we're admonished in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that what God's love did for us. He said, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's what God does with our offenses against him, and that's what his love in us can do for those who have offended us. Love seeks to protect another by covering or throwing a blanket, is the idea, over their, pro over their problems. And as you're dealing with people, perhaps you forgive and you covered and there's just no change. Well, love just doesn't stop at covering. The next level in this progression is that love believes all things. I believe this carries the idea of, of seeing the best in others. Love refuses to think the worst of another person or treat them differently because of their sh shortcomings. Love looks at a person not based on how they fail, but with the potential that they have with Jesus in them. Paul had lots of problems that he needed to address with the Corinthians as he, as he wrote this letter to them, but he didn't start with their problems. He didn't start with, now you Corinthians, you need to shape up. Here's your problems, and, and here's what you need to do about them. That's not how he started. He, he starts by acknowledging who they are in Christ. They were called to be saints. They were, saints, they were sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 3 of, of chapter 1, he blesses them, desiring the fullness of the grace and peace that God is offering to them through Jesus. Then in verse 4, he thanks God for the grace that he has already given to them. And he continues in the next verses with loving words that recognize that, that God has already done in their lives the work that God had done and, and the potential that they had in Christ. It's only after that that he began addressing their problems. Love sees the best in others by recognizing their potential in Jesus. Love earnestly desires and prays that that dear person is restored and comes to be what God wants them to be. But even when it seems like there's no progress, here's what love does. First, love bears all things, believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love quietly and, and confidently expects what God is able to do in that situation and doesn't stop expecting that God is able to take what seems so hopeless in the life of another individual and turn it to a miracle of his grace. And though you've covered failure, you've believed the best about the change that God is able to make in them, you've held out hope for that change. After all that, love goes a step further. Love endures all things. 
Love bears up under the pain of that erring loved one who hasn't yet repented of their wrong and endures the pain of that suffering without giving up on them. When you're tempted to give up on someone, that's an indicator. God, I need your love for that person right now. And then in verse 8, charity never fails. Charity never gives up on another because God is love, and God never fails. I just encourage you to take, take these qualities of love in, in 1 Corinthians 13 and, and memorize them so that, so that when you're tempted to do or say something that is not loving, the Holy Spirit can use these as indicators in your life. Oh, I need God right now. I need God to love through me. Nothing pleases God more than humble hearts who, who reach out to him to take the grace that he is offering in those moments. And whether you're tempted to be unloving or have given in to that temptation, the way out is to say, you're right, God. That's not loving. That is not you. Thank you for being here to help me love. And then obeying God by doing what is right with his help. Love is a choice. The love that shows up in the form of these different qualities is when we make the choice in the moment of our need to get a hold of God. And it's only then that we can truly love. Get to know your God. The more you know him by a moment-by-moment -moment walk with him, the more you love him, and the more he will be able to love through you. That's my need today. I'll conclude with 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Love is from God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for your love for us. Thank you that you always give us what we need for what you desire us to do. Thank you that in this command to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're here to help us with that. And Lord, the problem is that we just we get so focused on ourselves that we forget you. Lord, would you just guide us? Taking the truth of who you are and just submitting ourselves to let you be all that you want to be through our lives today. Lord, that you, that you alone would be glorified. Thank you for the work that you're doing in hearts and the work that you want to do and will continue to do as we look to you. We love you and pray that you'd be glorified in, in the rest of our time together here today. In Jesus' name, amen.